Welcome if you're a visitor this morning. The way that we uh, do things here at Bethel Christian Church normally is that uh, we work our way through uh, books of the Bible and at the moment uh, we're going through the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Uh, There may be some things uh, in that passage that was read out that are new and strange and hard to understand. Uh, We'll be comforted that sometimes as Christians um, we see things we don't understand straight away. Uh, But I pray that as we look at this passage, things will be made clear for you. So last week we looked at Revelation chapter 4 and we saw a description of John's vision of God the Father on his throne. And included in that picture were various things that symbolised the aspects of who God is and how he relates to the world. He is the one true and only God who is the ruler of all because he is the creator of all. We saw from the throne lightning and rumbling thunder which speaks of his voice, which he accomplishes his purposes in the world through speaking. We saw around his throne a rainbow that speaks of his faithfulness, that he is the God who makes promises and remains true to what he says. There were four living creatures or cherubim which spoke of all living, breathing creatures who are created to worship God for who he is. And then we saw 24 elders who represent God's people from throughout history, who likewise are created as human beings to worship and glorify God. Before his throne were seven blazing torches that speak of the Holy Spirit, who is the the one who makes God known to us. And there was a crystal clear sea like glass that speaks of God's sovereign rule over creation in both judgment and salvation. So this is the infinite, ultimate, holy God to whom everything in creation, including us, owes our very existence and to whom we are all morally accountable. No one dare approach this holy God unless they have explicit permission. Now chapter 5 then introduces a dilemma and it's the greatest dilemma of the human race. It's a dilemma that we all must face, we must all come to terms with. It's the dilemma that I presented in a way to the children It's introduced in verse 1 with the hand of God and what is in it, a scroll. See how the right hand is mentioned before the scroll. It makes for slightly clumsy language for us but the emphasis there is on the right hand of God before it is on the scroll. The right hand of a monarch speaks of their authority to rule. On May the 6th, King Charles III will be officially crowned as our king. 
and in that ceremony he'll be given a scepter or a rod to hold in his right hand, symbolising his authority to rule over the UK and all of its territories, including us. God's right hand speaks of his power, his ability, his right to rule over all of creation, from the largest galaxy down to the tiniest speck of dust, simply because he's God. He has authority over you because he's your creator. He owns you. If you struggle to accept that, we'll get over it because it's one of the most fundamental basic truths of the universe. The world, including us, has a creator and he rules over us with absolute sovereign authority. The Bible uses God's right hand to describe his powerful action in the world, in dealing with human beings. For those who oppose God, his right hand is to be feared. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. So fear his right hand if you are God's enemy. But for those who know him, his right hand brings comfort. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Secondly, see how the scroll is being made available to creatures. That's implied in the question, who is worthy to open the scroll? This is an invitation to anyone who is worthy to approach God's throne and to receive from him. See, the picture of God on his throne communicates to us that God's sovereign over all. He's above and beyond his creation. And that's why what Romans 1 means when it says that when we look at the creation all around us, we can see the invisible attributes of God, his eternal power, his divine nature in the things that have been made. And, and it says, therefore, we are all without excuse. No one can say, I don't know that there's a God, a creator. But this transcendent, holy, sovereign God had a purpose in creating the world. It was so that we as creatures might participate in his life and know not just about him, that he exists, but actually know him. And so his right hand with the scroll not only speaks of his supreme authority, but it is this invitation to come to know, to receive, to participate, to know his right hand not as something to be feared as an enemy, but something that brings comfort because we're accepted by him. But here's the great dilemma. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. Even if we claim to know or have a connection 
with God, there's a barrier that prevents us from coming to him. We are unworthy. No matter what we think about ourselves, whether we think we're okay, whether we think that we're not perfect but we've not done anything really wrong, whether we think, well, I have sinned but I'll do enough good to make up for my sin, we all stand unworthy in light of the perfect, spotless holiness of God. See, our, our moral condition can't be measured by comparing ourselves with other people. We do that all the time, don't we? We hear about unthinkable crimes and while we're shocked, we breathe a sigh of relief and we say, well, at least I'm not like that person. I would never do what they did. And when we hear of some beautiful act of kindness or bravery, we say to ourselves, yeah, I'm like that. I would do the same if I was given the the same opportunity as them. However, other people are not the standard for what good is. God is the standard. And when we honestly examine ourselves in light of who he is, we'll see that we all fall short of his glory. We all fall into the category of unworthy. Romans 1 goes on to say, for all they, although they, meaning us, knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So John's response in verse 4 is not out of proportion. He weeps loudly. He uses the word that describes the wailing that would take place at a funeral. To understand something of the emotion of these words, imagine that you woke up to the news that an asteroid the size of Texas was on a collision course with the Earth and in a few days will cause the extinction of all life on Earth and there's nothing that can be done about it. The death of the human race is certain. How would you respond? How would you feel That's actually the plot of the 1998 movie Armageddon, one of the many global disaster movies that have come out in the last few decades. But the real human dilemma is actually even worse. Not only will we all die, whether it's through a global catastrophe or just individually coming to the end of our natural lives, not only will we die, but we'll face the judgment of this holy God who created us and to whom we're morally accountable. There are two things that are certain in life, not death and taxes, death and judgment. So what will you say when you stand before the holy God? Will you 
What will you appeal to when he calls you to account? Do you think there's enough goodness in you to meet his perfect holy standard for creatures made in his image? It's the deep realisation of the utter unworthiness of all humanity to stand before God to approach his throne that causes John to weep and wail with despair and it should do the same for us when we see it. So how is this great dilemma then of humanity to be solved? Well, you can understand the dilemma even more if we ask the question, what actually is the scroll? What is the scroll in this vision? What does it actually represent in the hand of God? What are, what are its contents? And why is it the key to solving this problem of our unworthiness? Now, over the years, Bible scholars have offered a number of different interpretations of what this scroll rep- represents because we're not actually told here what it, it is. Here are the five most common views. One is that it is an explanation of the mysterious prophecies of the Old Testament. Or, it's God's plan for the unfolding of of world history from the beginning to the end. Or, it's the inheritance of humanity which was lost because of sin. Or, it's the judgments of God upon sinful humanity or it's the book of life showing who are truly God's people and who are not. Now some think that we have to pick one as if one is right and all the others are wrong. Well I say we take all five of them. They're five different perspectives on the one thing. See, if it's an explanation of the mysterious prophecies of the Old Testament, then the one who comes and takes the scroll and opens it must be one with great wisdom and knowledge. If it's God's plan for the unfolding of human history from beginning to end, then the one who takes the scroll must be qualified to rule over the whole world and all of history. If it's the inheritance or the destiny of humanity which we lost because of our sin, then the one who takes it must be a true and faithful heir and son to receive that inheritance. If it's the judgments of God upon sinful humanity, then the one who takes it must be able to save us from judgment and to make us right again with God. And if it's the book of life showing us who are God's people and who aren't, then the one who takes the scroll must know by name all of those who belong to God. Now, not on just one, but on all counts, we fall short. God doesn't expect our best efforts. He demands perfection on the part of those made in his image. Yet we maybe look at those things and we say, well, I can pick one that's true for me. In our pride, we presume to be okay 
as far as God's concerned. But who, who do we think we are to treat God with indifference or to presume to be able to approach him casually as if he's our buddy or if he exists to make us feel good about ourselves? I once knew a man who would begin his prayers with, What's up, God? How are you doing? How dare we, as creatures, presume to march up to God and ask him what's up? How dare we ask him how are you doing when before him his verdict of how we're doing is that we are unworthy in our sin and rebellion, not even worthy to mention his name? See, this is, isn't just a intellectual dilemma of trying to work out philosophically how it could be that a loving God could send people to hell. This is a personal and moral dilemma that hits us personally. The question actually is, how could a good and just God permit anyone, including me, to not go to hell? Well, the movie Armageddon didn't end with the annihilation of all humanity because there was one man, Harry Stamper, played by Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis has saved the world many, many times over. Harry Stamper planted a nuclear bomb on the asteroid and diverted its course, saving the whole world in one single act of self sacrifice. The nice ending, the happy ending to Armageddon made the difference between a flop and the $553 million that it raised at box offices. Well, neither does the story of humanity end in darkness. In verse 5, John is taken from the lowest depths of despair to the highest heights of wonder as he hears the announcement of the Gospel. If you remember nothing else from today, remember these four words because they are the most significant words in the whole of the Bible. Weep no more, behold. The Gospel tells us there is an answer to humanity's dilemma, a solution to the deepest despair, a relief from the guilt and the shame and the fear of our sin. There is one who is worthy. We're told that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, referring to Judah, one of the twelve sons of Jacob and the head of an Israelite tribe. Judah was given a promise that from his clan would come a kingly line to rule God's people. And we're told he is the root of David. This promised kingly line began around 1000 BC with King David, but after 500 years it was cut off as foreign powers invaded and oppressed Israel. The great tree of the kingdom of David was cut off at the ground. But when you cut down a tree... There remains, under the surface, 
the roots. And out of these roots grow a shoot, which becomes a branch, and then eventually a whole new tree. This is what John hears. The promised king has come. And in his victory, he he will establish a kingdom of peace and justice. So, John, look to see this king. He is the answer to your dilemma, the answer to your weeping. He is the answer to the dilemma of the whole human race. If there is, after all, one who is worthy to approach the throne, take the scroll and open it up, then that one is the only true hope for humanity. So John looks, expecting to see a majestic lion, fearsome in power and authority, or maybe a great tree that has sprung out of the roots. But what does he see? He sees a lamb bearing the marks of death, the scars of execution, the blood of sacrifice. Yet this lamb is alive and he stands in two places at once. He's between the throne and the four living creatures or a better translation actually is in the middle of the throne and he's among or in the middle of the elders who are around the throne. His place in the middle of the throne speaks of his divinity, that he is God. And his place among the elders speaks to us of his humanity. He's a man. And his appearance as a slain yet living lamb tells us how he has brought the two together, how he has solved the dilemma and enabled unworthy human beings to approach the throne of God and know that they are accepted. The lamb speaks of the sacrifices of the temple and of the Passover, which our Jewish friends are celebrating this very week. The sacrificed lamb tells you that while you deserve the judgment of death for your sin, the fiery wrath of God has been averted, turned aside, changed course, from you and placed instead on another who has died in your place. But of course an animal sacrifice can only symbolise that for you because no animal can truly represent you before the Holy God. These sacrificial lambs pointed forward to the day when one would come who would truly represent us because he is one of us, truly human like you in every single way except for your sin. This one will be able to truly represent God to us because he's God in the flesh. This is why Jesus was called by John the Baptist the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is God's solution to our dilemma when we were not only unable but also unwilling to provide the solution, God himself stepped in and did it for us on our behalf. Jesus willingly went to the cross out of his great love 
for you. We who treat him casually, we who treat him with disrespect. In his death, he bore our sin. He knew our shame. He died the penalty of death so that the power of sin and death and the devil is broken for all who put their trust in him. And so great, so perfect was this sacrifice for us that the Father raised him from death and hell and appointed him as the head of the entire human race. So he alone is worthy to take the scroll, to open it up, to look inside. If we're able to come to the throne of God, we can only do so as we do it in him, through faith in him. when we look to him who perfectly represents us before the Holy God. It's only then that we'll hear from Jesus the words, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Instead of these words of Jesus, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, we don't like the second set of words, do we? But they're as much the words of Jesus as the first. So, do not spurn the love of Jesus for you. His self-sacrificial love for you is serious. It demands a response We must not presume on his kindness unless we've also paid attention to his strong word to repent of our sin and flee to him for mercy. We can come not on the basis of what we are or what we've done, but on the basis of who he is and what he did. The actor Sir Ian McKellen recently said in an interview when he was recounting a trip to Manchester... He said, if you ever arrive in Manchester, if you're lucky enough to be able to afford the train fare, you come down the steps at Piccadilly and if you're lucky enough to be able to afford a taxi, you get in the back of one and the taxi driver, usually a man but not always, says, where are you going to, love? Oh, and I feel I'm home, where grown men call strangers love. I think if we all did that, it would be a rather better place, wouldn't it? And when people have got problems with gender and pronouns and so on, love covers everything really. Just call everyone love. Now that story might make you feel warm and fuzzy, but there's a cold hard reality. We don't call everyone love. And despite centuries of saying will fix this world if we just start loving one another. The world is just as full of greed and hatred and selfishness and violence as ever. No human heart has been changed just by trying to do better. No, the solution is not in just calling everyone love. It's in looking to the love of God displayed and demonstrated in Jesus Christ, 
In this is the, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In Jesus, the father looks at us and says, love, where to love? Come, come to me, love. This is real love. This is holy love. This is love that turns the world upside down and completely changed the course of human history from going straight to hell to a future that's bright and sure. Now, in conclusion, see how the actions of Jesus, the lion and the lamb, cause an eruption of worship to ripple outwards in concentric circles from the throne of God. If you can't read what's on the screen, it's there in your newsletter. The living creatures and the elders fall down offering songs and prayers to God because they see that God is not just the creator who deserves to be worshipped for who he is, but he is God the Redeemer who sent the Son to, to be slain, to ransom not just Jews, but people from every nation, people like you and I. Notice how Jesus' death has now made these people worthy to step up to their high human calling to be priests and rulers on the earth. This is what we were created for, to steward the creation under God, to be his representative to all other creatures. This worship then triggers a response among the heavenly creatures, the angels, who are uncountable in number. The word myriad was the ancient equivalent of our word Google, G-O-O-G-O-L, which we now know as Google the search engine. The largest number we can imagine, basically, is what it means. So, the angels follow the lead of the elders and they worship Jesus, the Lamb. This then triggers another response from every living thing in all of creation, people, animals, fish, birds, microbes, plants, all of God's creation resounds and echoes with worship. Why? Because Jesus' death and resurrection means not only the redemption of human beings, but it secures the renewal of the whole universe. Do you ever wake up to the beautiful song of a bird? That's just one creature who by instinct is singing praise to its creator. And that's just a foretaste of what it will be like when the whole world will be infused with and will radiate the glory of God. But it doesn't stop there because we're taken right back again to the centre of the throne. The living creatures and the elders respond to this worship of all of creation with more worship. This is an endless cycle in which everything that God has made is caught up in this glorious joyful worship of God. This is what you and I were created for. 
As the Westminster Catechism puts it, your chief purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. True worship isn't just about singing or going to church. It is living life before the face of God so that every word and action and thought and imagination is honouring to him and true to who you are as a human being made in his image. Now you may be living to glorify yourself and enjoy yourself but the fullness of joy, the fullness of your humanity will only be found when you are in a living, reconciled relationship with the Father which is brought to us through Jesus Christ. And I urge you all, whether you're Christian, non-Christian, whether you're professing, whatever you stand, put your faith in Jesus this morning. Let's pray.